I'm not going to waste my best years on, on a company that will not going to take off. So let's set measurable goals for every stage of the company. And I want to be very frank with you. If we're not going to make our goals, I'm not necessarily going to stay. This is Kristen O'Brien, Managing Editor at NFX. Today, partner Gigi Levy-Weiss gets together in Israel with Nira Arez, CEO of MoveIt. MoveIt is the crowdsourced transportation app that beat Google Maps and was acquired this summer by Intel for $900 million over Zoom. Nira and Gigi uncover how founders should think about setting KPIs, frameworks for thinking big about your market and company, and what the future of transportation really looks like. This is the NFX Podcast. Welcome, Nir. Thanks for coming uh, to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, congratulations are in order. It's only been a few months since uh, Intel acquired MoveIt. Let's go back to the beginning. And now, uh, you know, with um, I don't know, tens or hundreds of millions of people using MoveIt, the idea looks uh, very, very logical. But at the beginning, I'm sure that wasn't uh, as simple. How did you ever get, with the, get up with that idea? I mean, how did it all start? So, so the story is pretty awkward and uh, it's, it's not just a simple situation where I, I felt a pain and I decided to solve it. So it actually started over our training for a marathon in, in 2011 where my running buddy who is a public transit engineer who plans um, you know, railroads and, and roads told me how much public transit users are underserved. So the problem was defined by him and then he said that he might have a solution that requires a lot of information. Uh, when I looked at the problem, I figured out that you know it's a huge problem. There are 8 billion people around the world and only 1 billion cars. You can definitely understand that most people around the world um, use other means of transportation than driving their cars. But at the, the time, 2012, only 15% of the large cities around the world had any information in a digital way about uh, alternative uh, mobility, like public transit. I figured out that there's a huge problem of information. If you ask people what's the biggest problem of their mobility uh, on a daily basis, they would say information. And this is how I started when I saw the problem. Uh, I wasn't sure that I can solve the problem. But I figured out that if we would be able to solve the problem, it's, it's going to be huge. And that's how everything started. Basically, we, we took Tel Aviv metropolitan area as our first beta. And we didn't have any digital data about the lines and, and stops and schedule back then. We had to build it ourselves since Ministry of Transport in Israel were not willing to share this information with us, which mm-hmm. was a, a great favor because we figured out that we will have <laughs> that, to do that, it. That could have killed the company, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but we figured out that we'll have to build it uh, ourselves anywhere around the world, which is another lesson learned for young entrepreneurs. I mean, don't count on... On, on business development exactly. as your way to get things. And then when we built it, we went to our friends at Waze and asked them what would be uh, a benchmark to success. And they told us that six months, no marketing efforts, they, they were able to bring about 50,000 people to the platform. So I set that as my uh, goal. And after six months and one day, we had 100,000 users. Um, and then I figured out that people need the information, people use it quite frequently, and we have a huge problem of scale. So that's how everything started. That's really cool. And uh, you just said that um, that not getting the data, which I think at the time 
the common assumption was that over time, all bus operators and everybody, everybody will have a GPS, the data will be available anyhow, you don't need any additional sources. You went the other way completely and you basically built in a consumer-based, a user-based uh, network of data, which creates a really strong data network effect for the company. I mean, how, how much did you guys think about it originally or did it just evolve into that? And uh, how strong is it? So honestly, you know, it evolved through a process and, and I, I want to continue the, the story and when we figured out that we you know we spent about four to five months just building the static data not even the real-time data of Tel Aviv metropolitan area with, with like stations and like bus stops and lines and, and, and routes and, and schedule plan schedule we figured out that if that's gonna be the time that will take us to bring any new city to the platform you know it will take years because there are like 5,000 large cities around the world and and you know if you need to spend four months just building data for every city that's not going to work in the same time we we faced another problem completely different problem because when you open an app you open it in a country level so the next city we opened was madrid and we opened the app in spain and everybody outside of madrid gives us uh, a ranking of one star out of five because they were <laughs> insulted that we have not provided them data in their own city in barcelona Barca, or yeah. valencia that, or... That, that's very painful so we had we had to problem both uh we had to solve both problems uh you know getting the data quickly but also make sure that people will understand why we don't have data yep. so my co-founder who is 15 years younger than me and way more naive said why don't we just put the tools of building the, the transit data that we've created for ourselves over the web and ask people to join us I was quite skeptical to be honest saying why people would do it but when we combine the two problems when you open the app in a city where we didn't have a solution we apologized for not having the data but we also offered people to volunteer and help us build mm -hmm. the data so two amazing things happened one uh, people did not felt like uh, angry at us because you know they understand the process and and they couldn't give us one star because we offer them to help so if you're not willing to help at least don't, don't, don't bash us. Yeah. So that's one thing that happened. They stopped giving us one star. The second thing is, and that's an amazing story around the world, 1%, exactly 1% uh, of the population were willing to actively send us an email and volunteer. So today we have more than 800 million users and about 8 million users uh, volunteered to help us. Another secret is only 10% of them were useful. The hmm. rest was just good people that tried to help, but they were not skilled. Okay. to help us build the data. But if you think about a, a workforce of 800,000 people around the world today uh, that were qualified to become editors, that's amazing. So we built the data based on editors that actually spend time in front of their computers how, how editing. How much does each one of them spend on average? Like tens of, of hours a month. And they continue doing that over a period of time? Absolutely. You have to understand that transit data is way more dynamic than... Uh, cartographic map or roadmap. Sure. So every week in every large city, they change locations of multiple stops, schedules, changes. Uh, so that community is is doing a great job, not only in setting up a city, but mainly maintaining the transit data in the city. So what kind of recognition are they getting? So they just get recognition uh, within the app. We used to send them T-shirts in the beginning, but after 2,000 people... 800,000 T-shirts yeah, is a lot, 200, is a lot of, But after 2,000 people, it became too expensive. So it's mainly uh, a written recognition on the app and uh, giving them different ranks of you know city manager, region manager, country manager. And the highest rank, by the way, is an ambassador. 
Okay. And if you think about it, we got even extra bonus for, from, from these ambassadors because, you know, in, in countries and cities where we're not have, we do not have any people on the ground and we don't know the language, like, I don't know, Indonesia or Malaysia, these guys are representing MoveIt and going back to the transit operators and ask them to provide us with access to their car fleet management so we could have real-time information for the buses. So that actually solved the other problem. Uh, out of about 7,500 transit operators that we represent their data, more than half gave us access to the car fleet management so we could give a true real-time information based on GPSs on yes. the buses. And that's way beyond you know, Google Maps. It's five, six X more transit operators that uh, provide us data than you have on Google Maps today worldwide. And uh, when you looked at it, at the, I mean, you're already clearly, you're the winner in this field and you're, you're past critical mass. Uh, but at the time earlier on and co when competition was around, uh, do you feel that it's the data that made you win? It's the app? It's better service? What, what made you win? So at the end of the day, I think it's, it's the user experience combined with the accuracy of the data. Um, if you think of, of a solution like Movit, which is a utility, we targeted daily commuters. At the end of the day, daily commuters are pretty uh, much aware of how they get to their destination based on the, tr the trip planning, but they are way more focused on accuracy, the real-time information and um, service alerts and all kind of information that save their day if something gets uh, something goes wrong in, in, in the same day. So at the end of the day, what we figured out that people use Movit more than any other app because of the user experience and the accuracy of, of the information. We couldn't allow our app to be less user-friendly or than, than any other app, but at the same time, it's not enough. You have to provide people real value in order to create um, organic growth. And the real value is the accuracy of the data. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's not just the accuracy, it's the comprehensiveness. If you think about it, in, in a city like uh, Barcelona, there's not only the local transportation, there's uh, long-distance uh, long trains that get into the city, still have five to ten stops in the urban area, which people are using as part of their urban mobility. If you do not integrate this information into their daily um, trip planning, you're missing part of the service that people would expect to get. Yep. So it has to serve people and generate value to people. And uh, over the years, was it the consumer data, these ambassadors that helped you, that eventually got you to also get the company's data? In many aspects, yes, but, uh, but it's a combination. It's a combination of building tools around these uh, editors and make sure that we can verify the accuracy of the data. Um, we do a lot of uh, cross-tests uh, to make sure that the data is correct. Um, so it's a combination between the, the contribution of the community and the tools that we have built. But, but the company was very, very focused on user first. Yep. means let's make sure that our users get the most uh, value out of the app. Yeah, it's kind of amazing because uh, your biggest competitor was Google, right? Yes. And, and, you know, Google was there on the phones to start with. Google was there with the data to start with. And you guys still managed to capture people's imagination more and allow them to participate and contribute data, uh, which eventually got you to have much better data than Google. 
Yes, absolutely. And, and I think it's, it's all about, you know, when people ask me about that, I said out of the 800 million users, about 75% or 80% are Android users, which already have Google Maps preloaded yeah. on their device. So people bother to download, move it and use it. And it's all about the extra value you're getting. But it wasn't, it wasn't immediate and it wasn't easy because if you think about it, it's a utility with, with no viral effect because, you know, the fact that you're using MoveIt does not require you to invite somebody else to use it. So yep. the only growth effect is, is good word of mouth uh, effect and a lot of partnerships and, and, and marketing uh, work. All of our growth is, is free of investment. We do not invest cash in user acquisition at marketing. all. Yep. It's completely organic. That's quite impressive. And so today you are the number one uh, public transportation app in the world. And I know you started uh, a little bit of monetization around the selling tickets or and you have the carpool. So tell me a bit about the future. I mean, when, when, when will you guys become a full-blown marketplace of transportation services? So it's already happening. Uh, up to January 2018, we were a free app. But we started to generate revenues two, two and a half years ago, and we're looking at ourselves now as an urban mobility app and a mobility as a service platform. We decided that we, we don't want to charge our users anything. We would just like to provide them more services where we can make money out of. We generate a lot of data. We collect about 6 billion data points a day from our users completely anonymously. Mm -hmm and generates a lot of analytical uh, maps for cities to understand how people move within the cities. We sell this information. We license uh, transit data information to companies like Microsoft. We provide the mm -hmm. data for Azure Maps and Uber. We found significant different sources of revenues to the company prior to the acquisition, and it's, it's still growing. In, in a way, we're not just serving public transit users. Today, in the last three years, we aggregate almost any mean of transportation within the city to move it, and we developed a full-blown uh, multimodal trip planning, uh, which also includes the ability to drive your car to the nearest exchange point, which can be a train station, park your car, and continue with public transit altogether. Eventually, that's the future. That, that is exactly what people are looking for, a full multimodal solution that will combine first mile, last mile, and mass transit uh, to take you to the center of the city. And in that regard, do you see eventually uh, the movie app being the one app you need where you're going to also be able to book everything else? Or do you think that you'll have to go from the movie app to other apps in order to buy your tickets or, or reserve your ride? Yeah, we definitely want to be uh, the sole platform, but we understand that we will have to compete with alternative platforms. But if I look at the user experience again, the next step or the next level is to be able to get a full experience door to door with one app and one payment source. And in order to provide that, we're partnering with a lot of micromobility services and ride hailing services. But the most important partnership we have just signed a few weeks ago is with Cubic. Cubic is um, the largest uh, U.S. fare collection company. 70% of the mm -hmm. transit fare collection is going through Cubic uh, systems in all of the large cities in the U.S., starting from New York, Boston, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco Bay Area, the Clipper Cards, uh, Miami, Atlanta. And we're developing together with Cubic a unified platform for public transit 
payment where in other cities as well, the providers, the, the technology providers will be able to use this platform and eventually provide the users um, a single or a single point of payment for all services together. If you think about it, people would like to pay for transportation the same way they pay for their phone cellular bills. I mean, just consume it. Don't worry about it. We'll charge you by the end of the month, and we're probably going to do it in the most efficient and optimized ways. So that's the next step of, of urban mobility, where there are so many different options to pay for transit. It, it's kind of amazing that Israel has become a superpower of mobility startups, right? You know, we have, uh, you know, we have the Mobili at the top of it with their, you know, whatever, 17 billion acquisition. You guys with whatever their number is above a billion and Waze and we have uh, Via and we have Get. How come a tiny country like us that basically has, one, you know, let's face it, one of the worst transport systems in the world has become, um, you know, a mastermind of, uh, of uh, the mobility services? It's just my two cents. I mean, it starts with the fact that you've mentioned it. We, we do not have a good system here. So the challenges are clear and, and people would like to solve problems. Uh, and, and that's where it starts. But the true answer, I think, relates to the fact that all of the companies that you've mentioned started with uh, a global vision in mind. So we, in, in particular in, in transit, it's so hyper-local and it's so, um, I would say, uh, regulatory regulatory controlled uh, that you have to think globally and create a, a very uh, robust infrastructure to serve multiple cities, multiple countries, which makes all of us successful. So if you think about the problem to begin with as a global, pro as a global problem and you prepare yourself and build your infrastructure correctly, then you aim very high. You aim to concur you know, the, the world and not just a, a city or a country. And that what differentiate, uh, I think, most of the companies that you have mentioned. We, we thought global in, in the first place, and it's mainly because Israel is such a small market that nobody yeah, cares no about. Choice, yeah. So that, that's pretty much why I think uh, these companies were successful. And there is some ties, actually, between you guys and Waze, right? Yeah, so, so that's, that's another story for, for young entrepreneurs. I mean, when we started MoveIt, I already knew the, the Waze founders very well, and I, offered, I suggested my co-founders to go and, and consult with them. The first reaction was, let's not do it, they're going to steal the idea. But when I explained to them that the founders of Waze are very smart, so they either thought about it before they're doing it and we don't know, or they decide not to do it and we can also learn from that. <laughs> they agreed and, and we went to talk to the Waze founders and we figured out that uh, they thought it's too complicated and they want to be they want to focus on, on the driver's world. And it also gave us a little bit of, of feedback about the challenges that we're facing. And then I asked uh, Noam Bardin to allow Uri Levin to join our board of directors. And since then, we got a lot of insights from ways that helped us setting um, you know the the benchmark for growth or world uh, focus uh, in, in, in different areas yeah, that, that's very interesting many times I, I tell the story of how um, having on your site somebody that knows what KPIs you need to, to strive for saves you month on month on month I remember you know in one of the you know one of the games companies that I founded many years ago, just being able to get to the KPIs of others without understanding how they got there, but just knowing how good it looks like, knowing how, you know, what do you need to see as retention, what do you need to see as engagement, has saved us so much time because otherwise you can just either be really good and continue working on the wrong things or be really bad and think you're good. And uh, that just saves you month on month. KPIs are gold. Absolutely. And, and I want to share another 
anecdote. When I joined my two co-founders at MoveIt, they actually invited me to join a, a, and, and become the third co-founder. And, and they asked me to be the CEO. I told them, guys, that's my best years, and I'm not going to waste my best years on, on a company that will not going to take off. So my only request to you is let's set measurable goals for every stage of the company. And I want to be very frank with you. If we're not going to make our goals, I'm not necessarily going to stay. And that's, that's so important. Uh, and, and, and it actually drove me to raise my B round from Sequoia in the U.S. I, I really wanted Alfred Lin to, yep. to join our board of directors. Alfred were, were involved very in the very early days of Uber and then Airbnb and House and, and DoorDash and, of course, was part of, you know, uh, Zappos. And, and Alfred was able to bring me benchmarks that he saw at, at uh, Sequoia company, yeah. that was really insightful for me in, 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 in the way, exactly the way you say it, to understand are we good are we excellent or are we do we suck in, in something yeah and um, he definitely impacted uh, our way of moving forward in, in multiple areas so let's talk a little bit about the future of mobility I mean um, you know we've had a chat before about how future mobility would look like with regulation on one hand uh, the need for uh, For mass transit rather than just private cars and so on how do you and, and today with you know with scooters and you know flying cars soon who knows uh, how do you see the, the future of mobility in cities kind of based on your point of view which is probably you know you, you see what's happening more than anybody else with all the data you have and so one thing is for sure to me at least is that we're not going to end up with one mode of transportation so it's not going to be that once autonomous vehicles will be In a production mode everything will be autonomous vehicle so just to make sure we're all clear I mean one rail can transfer about 35,000 people an hour where different cars bumper to bumper even if it's autonomous can convey 2,000 people an hour on a lane on a, and, and yep. the infrastructure is very limited so I clearly see that the future is based on multiple uh, means of transportation that will have to Uh, mash into each other and, and, and people would be very demanding to become a, a smooth uh, experience. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a mass of, of uh, private cars. So regulatory force will have a lot to do with it by restricting areas to public transit only or autonomous vehicle only. And we see today more and more cities that starting to bid for um, shuttle services, last mile services. Yep. Uh, and we're talking about transportation on demand, which is a mix between a fixed route shuttle and, and, and ride hailing services. But we're talking about form factors of 12 seaters. Um, so at the end of the day, it will have to be a mix that will be regulated in multiple ways, you know, fares and also restricted areas by the local transit authorities. And this mix will have to work in a very uh, synchronized way. Yeah, it's, it's the handovers that's going to be the toughest, Absolutely. Right? I mean, if, if you get a trip plan that tells you to drive to the train station and you arrive to the train station a minute after the train left yeah, the, the and the trip's not really worth much exactly and you have to wait 30 minutes that's a nightmare or if you yeah. go to the train station but there's no parking air, uh, spots for you it's another nightmare all these small things has to be synchronized in order for you to be able to experience a smooth ride and people would like to have certainty when they leave home So driving your car, it's clearly certain. I mean, you drive your car, you have air conditioning, you listen to your music, but the only uncertainty is the traffic. In multimodal trip planning, the level of moving or the number of moving parts is so much higher that 
the future of mobility will have to take care of it. So basically what you guys are doing, which is planning the, the entire trip, is the key to streamlining future mobility. Absolutely, but it's also involved with a lot of effort coming from all different companies. I mean, Uber will have to dispatch their cars based on when exactly you expect to arrive with the train. And, you know, the, the car or the car with a driver or without a driver cannot park there for 20 minutes to wait yep. for you. It has to be fully synchronized. So this is what we're working on today and we're trying to build together with the multiple players uh, around the world. I'm sure that people are kind of curious on how do you think COVID is going to impact um, mobility? I mean, I, I know that, you know, many bus services have stopped. Uh, you know, or limited to less people on the bus, which is clearly difficult because you guys now need a new data point, which is, uh, will there be room on the bus for me if it's limited to 15 to 20 people? Assuming that COVID stays with us for a few more years, how do you see this impacting mobility? It just adds another layer of information that will have to be provided to the users. We're starting to work on that with multiple transit operators that put uh, passenger counters on the buses yep. and they transmit this information and make this available to people. But, but also I think that it really going to impact so many other things. I mean, working in remote uh, from, from home uh, will impact uh, some of the level of usage of transit. It's, it's a much bigger question that just public transit. Yeah. And, you know, that, that leads us clearly to the question of uh, autonomous vehicles. You're now part of, uh, you know, the largest uh, power group of autonomous vehicles with Mobileye. When is this happening? I mean, your perspective, what's required for that to really happen? And would it happen in the coming few years? And will this change everything like everybody thinks? So I'm, I'm not, you know, exposing any information that were not exposed before. So Professor Amnon Chashua, the, the head of, of, of this business at Intel, uh, senior vice president at Intel and leading this whole effort, already announced that in uh, 2022, we're going to run multiple production services of autonomous mm -hmm. uh, transportation on demand services. Uh, one will be in Tel Aviv. There's one in the U.S., at least one, if not two. And then one in Korea and one in Japan and one in, in Paris. So we're looking to operate it in a production mode in, in less than two years, which means that we're already running some tests today uh, with the vehicles and with the whole experience of planning a trip, calling a car, pick up and drop off in, in multiple places. So we're definitely doing it right now in, a, let's say, internal tests with Mobileye employees. Um, but this is going to be production in 2022 in multiple places. It's still not going to be a massive part part of, of, of the market, yep. and I would definitely expect they will take years before uh, this is going to be one of the most used uh, services. Regulation is still a big question, uh, and, and it's it's hyper-local, so regulation are very different between countries. So we'll have to see how that evolved in parallel. If you're, you know, if there are founders listening to us that want to create a startup in mobility, what, what are kind of the big themes that you think uh, would still, are still open for disruption, still ripe for disruption where people could focus on, on trying to reinvent some of the things that are around? I think that there's a lot of challenges in operating fleets. 
you know, fueling cars, cleaning cars. Um, you know, when we think about it, if we really believe that hundreds of thousands or millions of, of vehicles will be autonomous, uh, there's there's going to be a lot of challenging uh, challenges in operating yeah, the fleet. They're, they're going to drive themselves, but they're not going to clean themselves. Exactly. So, so there's a lot of uh, additional services that will be required in order to operate such fleets. I think that's one area uh, probably already several companies are dealing with it so the level of uh, cyber security for the for the vehicles yep. is also important entertainment within the cars other additional services in, in the cars can be very interesting uh, services uh, moving forward yeah I, I agree I think that um, you know mobility sometimes uh, feels as if there's really no more room for startup innovation but I think that the major changes that we're going to see are, are opening really huge opportunities Yep. for new companies yes Let, let's take a few minutes to talk about your entrepreneurial experience because you're not uh you're kind of you know you're you're kind of my age which makes us uh not as young as two, we used two to old guys not, not as young as we used to be and uh you founded a few companies before uh and so and then became an investor also and then came back to to be a founder what was different this time it's it's my third startup uh i have to say by the way my the second one just I uh, had an exit about 20 days yeah, after Optimo, moving. Optimo. Yeah, yeah that, so was a, that was a nice closure. I, I was part of another $360 million exit. Um, in a totally different field, right? It's a semiconductor company. So I think in MoveIt, I came with so much more realism to the game. means um, setting measurable goals, um, thinking really big. You know, my understanding was that making a $300 million company or a billion plus dollar company takes the same effort. Yeah. And it's, it's, it takes almost the same time. And you better be on the billion plus rather than the, the hundreds yeah. of millions. And um, it's easy to say, but the implications are that you have to think big. You have to understand that the total addressable market has to be very large and you have to attack a much bigger market than if you want to create a niche company. That's one thing. The other thing clearly relates to fundraising. And, and two important things that I've learned is one, you never raise enough money if you have very large dreams. So take money whenever you can. That's that's a cliche, but I think it's How really How much money did you guys raise in MoveIt? We have raised $130 million and we ended up with spending a little bit less than 100 before the acquisition. Mm -hmm. Was there any point that you were missing money? No, not in moving. I mean, in my previous companies, always. absolutely yes. But I think I, I went out and raised money always like two years before I really needed it. And, uh, and that's really important in understanding what are the inflection points that allows you to raise money. But in the same time, I wasn't really uh, argumentative about pricing or valuation. It was all about at the end of the day, I didn't try to optimize the valuation. Yep. I really tried to optimize enough cash for the company to run moving forward to the, to the next milestone. That, that was one important thing. The other thing about that relates to who I would like to work with. You know, you can divorce your wife, but you cannot divorce your investors almost at all. Yeah. And it means that, you know, and I, I'm still with my wife for 30 years. So it requires that we as entrepreneurs really need to do due diligence about who we're going to partner with. It's a very long journey. 
and you want your partners, the investors, to be really aligned with, with your vision. And otherwise, you know, it's not just money. You know, money can make things very complicated. So for me, at, at MoveIt, I was so much focused on not only how much money I raised, but also who is going to invest in the company and who exactly is going to sit on my board. I think it helped. Um, you know, the early stage investors were the ones that kept me running forward and they were the most involved in the acquisition. So it just tells you that I've picked yep. the right people. And, and so do, do you think that when you think about your investors, uh, the main thing is their strategic alignment? I don't, I don't know if, if we can call it strategic alignment. It's, it's about you know, understanding if, if they, they're willing to help you pursue your dream. Okay. And if they have a long enough patience to see you pursuing this dream and they're not forcing you to change directions all the time. And you know, if they believe in what you're doing, they should let you run and support you. And uh, I think it's, it's crucial. And when you think about starting MoveIt, you started as a third-time founder. What, what were the, you know, the benefits of being a multiple-time founder in creating this? And what was uh, the biggest pitfall? The one thing you feel that you might have done wrong because you're a multiple-time founder or you almost made wrong because of that? So, so the benefits were clear. I mean, when we came to raise the A round, I got six VCs that compete, were competing on the deal, even though they were not sure exactly what we're doing. So that, that's a great advantage. So the, the first round was, was very quick, and, and, and I also tried not to spend unnecessary time on, on terms and stuff. I, I could do it very quickly. The pitfalls, I would say that sometimes you think you've seen everything and you know everything. So I almost told my co-founder, forget about the community. I mean, it will never work. So one of the things that I've learned from that is even though you believe that you're very experienced, you should let people have a very long leash within your company to do crazy stuff. Even if you're not sure that it will work, don't always trust your experience. You know, mm -hmm. let people try crazy stuff almost when you're sure it's not going to work. And, yeah. and we, I almost missed this. And yeah, we, that, was, that was crucial to movie development. Yeah, we have a, uh, we have a playbook for second-time founders where we list all, all the pitfalls that we think they will fall into to help them avoid them. And clearly, they usually don't avoid them like we all do. But one of them is clearly not to think that you know everything and therefore not try, not try to think, which is what you always do as a first-time founder. And then as you become more confident, it's... Uh, easier to fall in that, uh, in that There's fall. something in the feeling that I've been there before. I can tell you where it's, and, and, and in many cases you're right, but in some cases when you're wrong, you can miss a huge opportunity. And yes. the balance is very delicate, so. I agree completely. So uh, on the more kind of, you know, funny thing, you, you guys negotiate a billion dollar deal remotely, right? I mean, how do you do that? I mean, I've done a bunch of these billion dollar deals, but it always included dinners and looking people in the eye and yelling and walking out of the room. You know, what do you do? Shut down Zoom and they upset you? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, well, so first, just to make things clear, I mean, from, from the first call discussing the LOI to the signing and closing, there was not even one face-to-face -face meeting. Everything, wow. including the due diligence, there was not even one face-to-face -face meeting. It was all happened starting um, second week of uh, March and ended up in uh, May 4th. So uh, not even one meeting. Going back to your question, there's it's much more difficult to walk out of the Zoom room, but, but yes, that's... That's, that's what you, you do. do, more or less. That was, that's what you do. But we, we, we didn't really need a lot of these things because most, 
most of the things were closed over the phone. Um, and two very important phone calls set the whole deal. One is a phone call with uh, Abnon Shashua from Mobileye that set the deal terms. And, you know, we did have some arguments about it, but we could find a way to, uh, to compromise on that. And the second phone call was a long phone call that I had with uh, Bob Swan, the CEO of Intel, who convinced me that even in this crazy period of time, I took a huge risk to get into this deal because we missed uh, an investment opportunity yeah. as an alternative. They're serious about it and they're looking seriously at the long-term vision and, and they're not going to be impacted from the COVID-19 uh, situation. Both calls uh, convinced me to take this huge risk and get into this uh, deal. But the, the flip side of it, if you think about it and, uh, on a serious note, I mean, people were available 24-7. You're at home, you have nowhere to yeah. go, nobody travels. Uh, you can't say that you cannot reach people because you, you, they can join the meeting in their pajamas and uh, it actually takes five clicks between meetings. You don't need to go to another building, you don't need, yeah. need to drive. So it becomes way more efficient in that aspect for the due diligence and, uh, and closing the deal. So the, the time frame was 60 days, we closed the deal in 42 days. <laughs> That's very impressive. Uh, an off question, you guys uh, have chosen to start the company in, not in a very typical place in Israel. This is, uh, you know, not in Tel Aviv, not in Herzliya. This is a question that comes up also a lot in the United States. I mean, do I uh, start my company in, uh, in Austin or do I start it in San Francisco? And uh, I think that also right now with COVID, um, people are think, starting to think about it a bit differently compared to what it was before. So. What made you choose that? Did it have any negative impact on the company? And, and would you see that now with COVID, this is going to become a bigger trend of top companies starting elsewhere? Well, we, let's put it in proportions. Uh, we're like 10 miles out of Tel Aviv. It's, <laughs> that, it's that, not that, like that the, the, the distance we're, between that, that Austin and the Bay Area. So yeah, but, ten, but Israelis treat it as if you're outside. 100 miles. Yeah, so, so the reason we put the office there is because it's, it's just one and a half miles from my house. Good, and that's the only, the only privilege that the CEO can have. The rest is just chores. But seriously, um, people ask us, we didn't have any problem to attract talent. Um, and I think it relates to the story you tell and the vision people see in you. And, uh, and I believe that now working remotely, it's even going to be easier. Uh, people can be spread all over. And as long as you pick the right people with the right talent, they can work either at the office or remotely with the same level of efficiency. Uh, we did not send any employee to unpaid vacation during the COVID-19 situation, mm -hmm. and we're even hiring now more and more people. So we keep the level of efficiency almost as high as it used to be before without the face-to-face -face meeting, although it's challenging. But uh, I do believe that we will see a trend of companies starting to build their offices in, in more remote areas. It saves a lot of money and uh, it makes the company very more efficient in a way of travel. Yeah. One last question, you know, when you look at your experience and, you know, I'm going to ask a, a you know, stupid question, but what's kind of the, the one core belief that you have about uh, entrepreneurship that you think young, young founders can enjoy and learn from? Uh, the one that is kind of not uh, what everybody thinks. Are they like, what's unique in your thinking? So one advice I received more than 20 years ago um, goes with me all the time. I mean, I was in, in a conference where the, the guy that was like 100 C young CEOs and, and the guy asked, who has children? Everybody raised their hand. And you can't 
look at your child and say that they're ugly. They're ugly. And it's, it's, but he said, but you can look at your startup and, and, and say, you know what, it's ugly, but I can fix it. And if I, if I need to think of one thing that I always try to be honest with myself is I look at my startup and said, where exactly I think it's ugly? And you can fix it. But if you, you don't have this ability to look inside and said, you know what, we are ugly in this situation or we're not performing uh, well, it's very difficult to, to fix it. And, and your startup is not your child. You can look at it in a, in a more objective way. And the way to do it, to my perspective, is to measure everything. And if you measure things and you compare it to the standard or to the standard that you want to be in and you're not there, don't try to find excuses. Try to understand why you're not there. And that's the most important uh, tip I gave myself and I give others. Thanks. That's great. Dear, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, and I'm sure you're going to continue conquering the mobility world now with, from within Intel. I can't wait to, you know, get my autonomous taxi in the movie app uh, and be handed over to another transportation. Thanks so much. You're welcome.